We've been in a sermon series called Greater. And in this sermon series, Chad has taken us through the story of Elijah, not to be confused with Elijah, who was his predecessor. And we've been working from this verse in John that says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Now, in the context of this verse, just as a reminder, Jesus was talking to the disciples. He's saying to the disciples, you guys and the church is going to do amazing things, even greater things than I did. Now, I was a little confused by this because I thought, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I've never fed 5,000 people. I, I, I don't, how do, I have never healed anybody with my hand. How can I do greater things? Now, it's interesting as I was studying this a bit and I realized that what the greater things that Christ is really talking about is because his death, burial, and resurrection is the basis for which as a church we develop and grow and we now have that message to bring to the world. That is the basis for the greater things that we will be doing for the kingdom. We are the ones who get to bring the message to the world and that is amazing. Now, perhaps we're not going to do miraculous things as Christ did, maybe, if God allows, but really... It's just about us being the church to this world. A few weeks ago, we started talking about the story of Elisha. And he burns the plow. Remember this. He, he's called by Elijah. He says, let's go. Elijah says, Elisha says, sure, I'm going to burn the plow. We're going to have a barbecue. Let's go. And absolutely by faith, he goes and he leaves his family and he becomes a follower. And he follows Elijah. Then we have this situation where they have to dig holes. The soldiers were digging holes to provide water, and God provided the water, and it was a miraculous event. And then last week we talked about the oil, the woman who gave everything, and all she had was just in the house. And, and, Eli and Elisha poured oil after oil and said, get the containers, there's more oil and oil. And everything seems to be working out pretty well so far. But what happens when we pour out the oil and the jar is empty? What happens when we dig those holes and no water fills them? I have good news for you. That is the beginning of greater things. When God works in mysterious and wonderful ways, in ways that we don't expect, that is when greater things begin. Now, today we're going to be talking about a really interesting story uh, pertaining to Elisha in 2 Kings. And it's kind of a long discourse. And so I'm going to read it. Please be patient. There's a ton of stuff going on here. But we'll get through it together, I promise. So everybody take a deep breath. Ah, let it out. Okay, here we go. This is found in 2 Kings 4, 8 through 37. We're going to break it up a little bit. It starts at 8. It said, Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive this is a holy man of God passing by continually. Please. Let us make a little walled-up chamber, and let us make a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand, and it shall be, when he comes to us, that he can return here. One day he came there, and he turned in into the upper chamber, and he rested. Then he said to Gehiza, his servant, call the Shunammite. And when he had called her, he stood before her. He said to him, say to her, behold, you have been careful with us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army? And she answered, I live among my own people. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehiza answered, truly, she has no son, and her husband's old. He said, call her. And when he called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, at this season next year, you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. The woman conceived and bore a son that next season, the next year. 
just as Elijah had said to her. So this woman is just living out her life. She's just doing her thing. And then along comes this prophet, and out of an act of kindness, she puts him up in her house, gives him a room and food while he's in town. Now, we're given no indication as to what the motives of this woman was or what they were. It does say that she was prominent, so she probably didn't need much, if anything. Now, the one thing that does come up as Gehiza is consulted is the fact that she does not have a son. One thing that perhaps she thought impossible. Now, the reaction of this woman to this news is actually really interesting. Instead of surprise and excitement and jubilation over such a promise, she reacts with, don't mess with me. In other words, this is like a biblical version of, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> now, it's hard, it's hard to say in this moment if it's kind of a Sarah response. Like, you remember Sarah when the, the angel came and promised to Sarah a child? And she laughed. That's why the name is Laughter. So we don't know if it was kind of like that where she's like, oh, come on. Or maybe it's the fact that deep down in her heart, she has wanted this for so long and prayed for it for so long that she's broken about it. And she's saying, don't mess with me. Now, even though she was prominent, it's possible, of course, because of the times and in that place, that she was a prominent woman. But in the culture, it was shameful to not have a child. And so there was a stigma that came with it. And it was, you, most of the women then were considered a disgrace. And she seems to be saying, prominent or not, to the, to the prophet, you better not be messing with me. And now her hopes are up. And sure enough, a year later, she has a son. But the story continues. 2 Kings 4, 18 through 28. When the child was grown, the day came when he went out to his father, to the reapers, to the field. He said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat upon her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, please, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may return to the man of God. He said, why will you go today? It's neither a new moon or Sabbath. And she said, it will be well. In other words, she's saying it's, it's going to be fine. When she saddled the donkey, she said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehiza, his servant. Now, this is interesting. Elisha is saying to his servant, hey, there's the Shunammite woman. Please run to her, meet her, say, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, it's well. When she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehiza came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask for a son, my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Now, this story turns quickly. It goes from the blessing of the son to the son's now dead. Now, a lot of interesting things happen here that we don't have a lot of time to go over. But in what seems like a very strange turn of events, the son's probably four or five by now. It's been a couple years. He's out in the field with his father, and he appears to die from a heat stroke. The woman's first response is to place the child in the bed that Elijah slept in. Why? Why would she do that? Well, back in 1 Kings 17, 17, we read a very interesting story about Elisha's predecessor, Elijah. In that story, which is strangely similar to this one, a woman's son dies. Elijah takes the boy, lays him in his bed, lays down on the boy three times, prays to God to heal the boy, and it works. So fast forward now, and it's possible that this woman had heard about this story and was attempting to perhaps repeat the miracle on her own. 
but it doesn't work. Then something strange happens. She doesn't tell anybody that the son is dead. She doesn't tell her husband or her servants. She just says, let's go. She goes right to the source. She goes to find Elisha. Now, there's a rather significant point to be made here about us trying to fix our own problems. You know, the problems that only God can fix, but we'll have to save that for another sermon. In what seems like a very funny moment, she appears to march right past Elijah's servant, right? He comes up, hey, how's it, how's it, all right, Elisha. So he goes right to the source, and she says to him, what have you done? Why have you done this to me? I told you not to get my hopes up. I didn't even ask for a son. And now that you gave him to me, you just ripped him from me. I knew this would happen. I told you to not get my hopes up. I would have been better off without the son if I knew it would end like this. Now, I added that last bit. But it seemed to me to be fitting. The woman's plight actually sounds very familiar biblically. Remember the Israelites? When they were struggling in the desert after God called them out? And they yelled and whined and complained, and they said, we would have been better off just to stay in Egypt as slaves. In other words, God, it would have been better off if, I had just, if you had just never gotten involved. It would have been better off if we were just still in Egypt. And now we're just going to die here in the desert. Now the woman's response seems to be similar. I would have been better off if you had never given me the son in the first place. Now, I wonder if there are times in your life when you're in the desert when something that you didn't even know that you wanted or maybe something that you did know that you wanted had been seemingly ripped from your grasp and you say to God, if this is what it looks like to follow you, then I don't want it. I think I would have been better off never becoming your son or daughter. I was better off without you. Do you ever feel that way? This also sounds like Gideon. In Judges 6, God delivers his people over to the Midianites. And in Judges 6.13, Gideon says, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why? Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did the Lord not bring you out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. And he delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. At times, our faith can be rattled. And like these examples, we might think I would have been better off on my own. If this is how God works, I'd rather not waste my faith on something so seemingly unreliable. So this woman is given a son out of an act of kindness, and then the son dies. She comes to Elisha and says, you did this, fix it. But wait, the story continues. 2 Kings 4, 29 through 37, then Elisha said to Gehazi, gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. If anyone salutes you, do not answer him. Uh, and lay your, my staff on the lad's face. There's something interesting about the staff here that I don't have time to go into. I wish I could, but think of staves. They're really important in the Old Testament. Staves are... Anyway, the mother of the lad, as the Lord lives, you yourself live. I will not leave you. So the mom, real quick, the mother's saying, yeah, that's cool. Thank you. I'm staying with you. I'm not leaving until this is done. So she's saying, I'm staying right here. So Elisha basically figures, well... Okay, let's go. So Elisha goes with her back. So Gehiza puts the staff on the sun. The lad was not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on the bed. So he entered and he shut the door behind both and he prayed to the Lord. And he went up and he laid on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth. 
he went up and stretched himself on him, and the lad sneezed seven times. And the lad opened his eyes. He called Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground, and she took up her son and went out. The son dies. Elisha prays. The son comes back to life. It all works out. It's that easy, right? Ask God and he'll give it to you, right? Sermon's over. Because that's what always happens, right? When we ask God for something, it always works out. Well, not really. And I think we all know that that's not true. Now, let me ask you a question. Assuming that you have made a decision to follow Christ, what prompted that decision? Why did you decide to trust in faith and become a believer? Why did you decide to become a disciple? Was it fear or loneliness? Was it peer pressure at a church camp or a revival? Was it to stay out of hell? Was it to get into heaven? When you made that decision, did you really know or understand what you were getting into? How did your journey of faith begin? Now, what I'm about to say in no way is a political statement. You guys can save that for Facebook and Twitter. This is not what that is about. However, as I was thinking about this this week, it reminded me of a press conference a couple years ago with Nancy Pelosi. A few years ago, the House and the Senate were deb debating passing the Affordable Care Act, and I remember she held up this huge piece of legislation and said, we just need to get this thing passed, then we can read what's in it. And I thought, wait, what? That doesn't make sense. We need to just approve this thing before we even really know what we're approving. It's interesting because I think it was because of the benefits of the law that it was passed, but no one really seemed to say, wait, what about the cost? What is this thing going to cost us? Now, I wonder how many of us became disciples and came to faith in God the same way. We signed up for this faith thing because there seemed to be some pretty good perks and benefits, but we really didn't think about what it was going to cost us. We hadn't read the book. We hadn't read the law yet. And perhaps we never thought to ask, what is this going to cost me? What is faith in Christ going to cost? C.S. Lewis states it well in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, God says, give me all of you. I don't want much of your time, so much of your talent and your money and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measure will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me. The whole outfit. All of your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Turn yourself over to me, and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself in exchange. I will give you myself. My will shall become your will my heart will become your heart. Being a true disciple of Christ, having faith, it's going to cost us everything. Everything that we are and everything that we do belongs to God. After we accept Christ as our Savior, it usually doesn't take long for us as believers to realize this whole faith thing is going to be a little bit harder than we thought. And we start asking, what did I get myself into? And we may ask, what is this faith thing going to cost me? And all too often, when things get hard, when things get tough in our walk of faith, the things that we thought we were doing in faith with no motives comes to the negotiating table with God. Maybe you're trying to get a new job or just keep the one you have. You might say something like, okay, God, 
I wasn't going to bring this up. <laughs> but you remember a couple weeks ago, I, I was driving by, that person was broken down, I got out, I changed their tire for them, and, and that was pretty good. I feel, like, I feel like that should be a good reason why you should give me this job. Or what about this? Uh, uh, God, um, I didn't want to bring this up, I, but just so you know, um, you know all those times I visited people in the hospital? You know, it made them smile and laugh. Well, I'm just asking, I, I mean, could you do me a favor now and just keep me out of the hospital? See, all too often when it comes down to it, we start bartering and bargaining with God. All too often we think our motives and actions are pure, but when it comes to it and things start falling apart around us, we tend to try to remind God of all the good things that we did in his name and say, now you owe me. Frustration and despair will always come when we put our faith in the wrong place and in the wrong things. Like the Israelites who turned from God once things got rough. Why did they turn from God? It's because they wanted comfort and peace. They wanted familiarity. They didn't want God. Are we all that different? The true tests of our faith will never come in times of comfort or peace. I'm going to take a drink of water and say that again. The true tests of our faith will never come in times of comfort and peace. In the story with this woman, she seemed to have good motives. She was blessed for it, but in the end, she comes back and says, wait, I did this for you. Now you owe me. Raise my son from the grave. For this woman, it worked out. Her faith worked out. Her work, her act of faith worked out. But what if it hadn't? What if the son would not have been raised from the dead? Would her faith be wasted? How many times have you sought God and earnestly prayed and sought him? You put your faith in him, and in the end, there is no miracle. There is no life. You're not alone. Today is a, um, a very special anniversary for my home. Um, Fourteen years ago, we were praying diligently for a woman at my home church. Her name was Judy, and she had a degenerative muscular disease that the doctors basically said she's going to die very soon. And so the whole church and everybody started praying for her and praying for her as she was in the hospital, literally clinging to life. Now, in that same time, it just so happened that Kelly, my wife, her mother, found out that she had cancer. It was a very small piece, little lump right on her lung. She didn't smoke, none of that. It just was there. But because of that little piece of cancer, that little lump, it spread to her entire body. She had cancer through her whole cardiovascular system. And we prayed. The whole church prayed. Everybody prayed. Pam wasn't supposed to die. Kelly's mom wasn't supposed to die. We didn't even know this was going on. We had been praying for Judy for a miracle. God, please save her. She's on the brink. And now we're praying for Kelly's mom. It may come as no surprise to you what happened. Judy survived. Judy was healed. Kelly's mom passed away 14 years ago from cancer on this day. Was, was our faith wasted? That's just one of my stories, just one of them. But let's look at some biblical examples of stories that didn't end the way, perhaps that those involved thought they should. What about David? David has, a, in, a, in a story that we know well, David has an affair with Bathsheba. From that affair comes uh, a pregnancy and comes a child. And God says, uh, because of this sin, 
the baby's going to die. And David, David prays. He fasts. He goes to the temple. He does everything he can to save that baby. God, it wasn't the baby's fault. It was my sin. Please, that baby's born. The baby dies. David's, David's response is always so interesting here because the first thing he does is he strips his clothes off, he puts on the sackcloth and goes to the temple to praise God. That's, that's, that's right. <laughs> that's not what the sermon's about, but that's right. What about Job? Job, of course, everything was taken from him. His family, his, his, all his animals, his livestock, everything was destroyed. And in the end, God says, in one of my favorite moments in the Bible, Gird your loins, O man. In other words, man up. You want to come and ask me questions? Time for me, God, to ask you a man questions. Now, if you want a moment of sheer terror that could never be grasped in any kind of film or skit, I mean, I just can't imagine Job being like, God, but you, it, God, is it? And God's like, hold on, let me ask you a question. And Job's like, uh, and I, I, he's probably looking for the nearest cave hole or rock to just jump in. Anyway. He doesn't get his stuff back. His family's dead. He prayed. He earnestly sought God to stop all these suff- all this suffering, all the pain. And it just kept happening and happening. Now, in the end, Job was blessed. But it wasn't with that same family. It wasn't with that same cow. It wasn't with that same home. He was blessed, but not before he suffered. What about Paul's thorn? Paul says in, Cor- in 2 Corinthians, I've prayed several times. Why can't I get rid of this thorn? I just wish that I could get rid of this thing that is driving me insane. It's driving me crazy. God, please take it away. And the Bible says in, 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 a, in a strange kind of a word play in the Greek, and forgive me for being a Greek geek, but um, it, it says three times. This is kind of the seven times 70. It means like he prayed a lot. Three times is the number that they put in there, but he prayed a lot about this. And God said, nope, you're, you're living with that. that. That is what you have to live with. Paul prays. God says, nope. You're living with it. What about Jesus? Surely he never had a moment like this where he was disappointed or had a result that was not what he expected or wanted. What about the Garden of Gethsemane? When he's praying to God, great drops of blood are pouring from his head as he says, Father, please take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. We, of course, Praise God today for the result of that unanswered prayer. Because Jesus himself was told, no, this is the plan. We've got to go with it. There are many more. In these examples, things don't seem to have worked out the way they wanted them to. Was their faith wasted? Is your faith wasted when things don't turn out the way you want them to? Is that when you pull out all of your, but I did this for you, God, cards? In the book Greater by Stephen Furtick, he says, The faith of all saints through the ages is not enough to eliminate the reality of suffering. Because suffering is not a detour on the road to greater, it's a landmark. Discouragement is a marker often not of being on the wrong path, but being on the right one. Suffering is a part of every believer's faith journey. But if your faith is in anything less than God, you will always be frustrated and disappointed because everything else will fail you. Now, at this point, it's kind of strange, but I think we've gotten ahead of ourselves just a little bit. Maybe we need to consider what faith is. In Hebrews 11.1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction 
of things not seen. As believers, what is hoped for? What remains unseen? What should we be placing our faith in? What one thing is assured as believers? It's a reunion with the Father. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved or longed for his appearing. Now, there's something very interesting here. Again, uh, we, most translations say have longed for or for loved his appearing. This is really cool because what this is, is it's one of those Greek words that have no English translation because there's so much of an emotional connection to this verb that we don't have a word that really fits because our language, though we do have some that evoke emotion, this one is a true longing. This is such a longing that you are just yearning for this moment. You are in love with the thought of his reappearing. That's what's happening here. There is only one thing that should we, have our, we should have our faith in. That's that God will always be enough. And that in the end, we will be reunited with him. Faith can never be wasted if it's in the right thing. The two most important promises that we have from God, and I would allow and I would challenge any one of you to write me a note and say, I disagree. But I asked several people and I said, of these two, could you give me another promise of God that means as much as these two promises? And the answer has always been no. The two promises that I find as the most significant with God, the two most important promises is that he'll never leave us. God says that he will never leave us. And the second one is he's coming back. We will be reunited with the Father. Every act of faith that we have should point to those two things. Now, I want to play a movie clip for you. I love movies. I think you guys know I talk a lot about movies. I watch a lot of movies. I have a movie blog, Adam's Apple. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, now, I've told you guys in the past that there are two movies that always make me cry. And this is one of them. And even just now talking about it, I'm telling you, and I talked to Kelly about this at length. I said, what can I do to not cry about this? Because I have daddy issues. My dad left when I was seven, and uh, he died when I was 19 before I had a chance really to reconcile. Once I became an adult and finally could say, what happened? I, I didn't get that. And so it's hard for me when I watch things like this because it involves daddy. One of my greatest, one of my favorite films of all time is Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams is a great, great baseball movie. I thought the acting was wonderful. I think the story is great. I recently actually bought the book that this film's based on because I wanted to get the whole story. And so I've been reading through that. If you recall, Ray Kinsella has been challenged by the voice, if you build it, he will come. And then he builds the field. And then it says, go the distance. What does that mean? I don't know. I got to go to a baseball game in Boston. Okay, go. So he goes there. And then he meets uh, Darth Vader. And, uh, or, uh, um, <laughs> Uh, James Earl Jones, James Earl Jones. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and, then, and then they hear a voice at the baseball game, and it says, uh, ease his pain. Wh what are we doing? Okay, we're going to this small town to find this doc. Okay, the whole film. He does everything that he was asked to do, okay? And then this happens at the end of the clip. And please, honestly, I am not putting on airs. I am going to cry. I cannot 
help it. I don't know, well, I know why, but we won't, you know. Anyway. Ray, we're going to call it a day. See you tomorrow. Okay. All right. Hey, do you want to come with us? You mean it? No, not you. Him. Him? Come with you? Out there. What is out there? Come and find out. Wait a second. Wait a second. Why him? I built this field. You wouldn't be here for work for me. Well, you wouldn't be here for work. You have a family. I know, but I want to know what's out there. I want to see it. But you're not invited. Not invited? What do you mean, I'm not invited? That's my corn out there. You guys are guests in my corn. Right. No, wait. I have done everything I've been asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done it. And I haven't once asked what's in it for me. What are you saying, Ray? I'm saying, what's in it for me? Is that why you did this? For you? Whoa. Sounds familiar. Regardless of our motives, what we do, we do it like Ray in the film. And please, please, I know there's tons of holes in this whole thing. I get it. Okay, just allow me the moment. (laughs) There are tons of things that we do in our lives thinking pure motive. We do it thinking that it's out of an act of love for God and faith. But when it comes down to it, The blessing, it's not for you, it's for him. Whoa, 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 hold on. I did everything you wanted me to do. I did everything. What's in it for me? Watch what happens next. Bye. What? (laughs) What are you grinning at, you ghost? If you build it, he will come. his pain. Go the distance. It was you. No, Ray. It was you. (laughs) Sorry, it's a stupid movie. (laughs) Why do we do what we do? What should we put our faith in? Our faith should be in the assurance that God is with us and that we will be reunited with the Father. Nothing else matters. All of our acts of kindness and compassion, all of our good deeds, all should have one motivating factor. That is that we represent God well as we await our reunion with him. C.S. Lewis says, to have faith in Christ means, of course, try to do all the things he says, There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have already handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. 
but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get into heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven already is inside of you. Can faith be wasted? Not if you have faith in the only thing that is true, and that's that God will always be enough. The process of developing faith is full of joy and sorrow, but in the end, the one thing that should always be our motivating factor is our reunion with our Father. That is how we live by faith, and that is how faith can never be wasted.